I want to start with a question this morning. If you were to walk to heaven, how would you get there? How do you think you would do it? Um, I think it's one situation where if you had a, a GPS, you know you can add in maps to your GPS system, if you have a TomTom or a Garmin, and you can add maps to get you to Europe or wherever you're going, you can put extensions onto your GPS. But unfortunately, you won't find um, an extension that will get you to the heavenly kingdom, that will get you to heaven to be with uh, Jesus. <laughs> it's very hard for us to physically kind of think about where heaven is, isn't it, really? Exactly, exactly where heaven is and where it's located some people have stipulated it's sort of out there in outer space, or other people say it's in a different dimension. But when you think about where is heaven physically, it's a bit difficult to know, isn't it, really? But we know, obviously, it's there, because the Scripture tells us there. So the Bible gives us lots of hints and, and tantalizing glimpses into heaven, but there is much about heaven, to be honest, that we don't know. But what we do know is that walking to heaven, walking to heaven, is what the Christian life is really all about. That's what we're doing. The New Testament tells us that this planet is not our home. It's not our ultimate home. Um, it's a bit like a travel lodge um, on the side of the motorway. It's not where we're heading. It's not the Hilton we're going to in the end. So, we're basically, we're pilgrims, we're travellers, and we're wayfarers. And Peter, the Apostle Peter, he puts it this way. He says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. So, we're sojourners and pilgrims, wayfarers in this life. I don't know whether you've ever read the Chronicles of Narnia, um, but you remember there it talks about the Shadowlands um, and how, how the world there is. A, the world we're in at the moment is kind of a Shadowland, but there's a greater world just beyond it, something that's more substantial, something that's more real, something that's more rich, and something that's more deep. And that's the country that we're longing for as Christians. And that is the same desire that the patriarchs had. Um, in the book of Hebrews it says, But now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So as Christians we're walking to heaven. But we're not just walking to a destination. We're walking to a person. More important than the physical place we're walking to is we're walking to a person. And that person that we're walking to is the person who makes heaven heaven, Jesus himself. So God is with us here. We enjoy his presence. Um, Jesus is with us by the Holy Spirit. He said in his word, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. But one day, faith will give way to sight, and we will see Jesus face to face. So we're on a journey to a person. 
Just being with Jesus, just being with him, will be heaven enough for us. Just being with him. Amen. Amen. Jesus said, he promised and he said, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be always. And when we get there, thus we will be forever with the Lord. We will be forever with him. In the warmth of his embrace, his presence will drive away those clouds of doubt that we have in life. They will take away that mist of confusion that often surrounds us in life. And it will take away the searing pain that this life can often bring. Jesus will be there. Do you remember Eric Clapton? I don't know why I know about Eric Clapton. I'm too young for that, but of course. (laughs) But um, Eric Clapton wrote a song, and it was called Tears in Heaven. But you know, we know as Christians that there won't be any tears in heaven. There won't be any tears in heaven. It says in Revelation 21 and verse 4, it says, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There'll be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Amen. So that sounds amazing, doesn't it? It's something to stir our hearts. We sometimes feel, especially when life is getting difficult, we feel that yearning to be in heaven, to be with Jesus, to be perfected, to be in his presence. Heaven is a good place to be walking towards, and Jesus is a good saviour to be walking towards. But the question remains, how do we actually walk there? How do we walk to heaven? How do we walk there? What I want to do today is I want to really give you just six points, okay? They're not going to be too long, but six brief points from this passage we've looked at. Three are in the positive about how we should walk to heaven, and three are in the negative, how not to walk to heaven. Paul is being a bit here like a mountain leader, like an expedition leader. Before the hike begins, he's saying, look guys, if you don't want to get lost, if you don't want to get stuck in a ravine or you know, end up attacked by a sheep or something like that, these, or maybe not a sheep, a bear, <laughs> um, these, are the, these are the things that you need to listen to. These are the things that you need to listen to. Okay. So first, verse 1, just look, at, look uh, at the scripture with me now. Verse 12, uh, verse 12, first point, do walk with a humble confidence. Paul says, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Not that I have already attained. Have you ever met a Christian who thinks that they've arrived? Have you ever met a Christian like that? Can I ask you something else? Have you ever been that Christian who thinks that they've arrived? Um, But sadly, the I've arrived syndrome, let's call it IAS for short, IAS, you know, uh, syndrome, (laughs) is quite common among Christians. Lots of Christians think that they have arrived, that they are it, that they have got to that point where they've arrived um, and, and where they are it, basically. Some Christians believe that they no longer sin. Can you believe that? Um, but some Christians believe they no longer sin. 
Some Christians think that they've arrived because they've worked so hard for Jesus. They've just worked so hard for him, so they must have arrived. And some people think they've arrived because they know so much about the Bible and about Jesus. All sorts of reasons people think that they've arrived. But what does Paul say here? He says, not that I've already attained. Was there anyone like Paul, anyone who had been as Christ-like as Paul? Apart from Jesus, do we know many people who were more Christ-like than the Apostle Paul? Do we know many people who were more knowledgeable in the Scriptures than the Apostle Paul? Do we know anyone who laboured and sacrificed more for Jesus than the Apostle Paul? I don't. Um, But he still says, not that I've already attained. And the problem is, if we think that we've already attained, it can lead us to two pathways. If we think we've already arrived, it can lead us to two problems. Problem number one, it can lead us to pride. And we know the Bible says that God resists the proud. He resists the proud. But problem number two is it can lead us on to spiritual complacency and laziness. And the thing is, God has further things that he wants us to press into. We've never attained, we've never arrived um, until we get to heaven. But there was a paradox in the Apostle Paul. Although he was humble, although he, he knew that he hadn't arrived, he also was supremely confident. We always think, often we think of humility and confidence as being opposites. You know, can you really be confident if you're humble? Can you be humble if you're confident? We think of them as two ends of the spectrum. But someone, Paul was someone who was keenly humble. He was keenly aware of the fact that he hadn't arrived. But he was also supremely confident. Not confident particularly in himself or confident in his own performance, but confident in the fact that God had got him and that God's clasp or God's grip was on his life. Do you remember he says in Philippians 1 and verse 6, he says, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. So Paul knew that because Jesus had already attained, because Jesus was already perfected, because Jesus had already laid hold of him, that he simply needed to press on into everything that Jesus had attained for him. So that's the first thing. Paul says we walk to heaven with a humble confidence, not in ourselves, but in Jesus. But the second instruction that Paul uh, gives as an expedition leader, instruction number two, is he says, do walk with a future focus. Walk with a future focus. If you look in verses 13 and 14, he says, brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. When you're in the heat of a marathon, when your heart is beating furiously and every muscle is pumping, your mind is entirely focused on reaching that finishing line. 
Now, to be honest, I don't know much about marathons. Um, Ollie probably does, because he's done a few. <laughs> but isn't that true? When you're in the middle of a marathon or a race, you're focused on the finish line. You're not thinking um, about maybe what you've had for dinner. You're not thinking about what's on the TV tonight. You're just focused on that marathon. And that word here, press on, it has athletic connotations, really. Um, it's this idea of being in a race. But when you're in a race, and when you're preparing for a race, you're single-minded. You have to jettison everything else in your life so that you can focus on the goal of getting across that finish line the first and being there first. So Paul says um, in uh, verse 13, he says, One thing I do. There was a single-minded focus. Now, sometimes we think in our Christian lives, well, obviously we have to avoid sins. We have to avoid going into gross sin. But sometimes there can be things that are not actually wrong. They may be good things in and of themselves. But if we want to press on and pursue the things that God has for us, we need to, uh, we need to set them aside, maybe for a season or maybe for a time. Um, Paul says, doesn't he, in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 12, he says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. The reality is, is that there's a finitude to our lives on this earth. You know, um, David says, doesn't he, in the psalm, he says, teach me to number my days aright. There's a finitude to our days on this earth. And we know that the spirit of Antichrist is growing in power. We know not, not the Antichrist as such, but that Antichrist spirit in the world system, it's growing and it's becoming more and more pervasive. And we know that time is getting shorter and shorter. And that day of grace when people can respond to Jesus and be saved is getting shorter and shorter. We've been placed as Christians, the reason we're here is we've been placed on this planet to metaphorically snatch people from the jaws of hell and bring them to Jesus. That's why we're here. That's why we're here. And so we need to invest, we need to spend our lives on something that are of an eternal significance. Not just fritter away our lives, not just fritter away our time on things that don't really matter. Um, in Ephesians 5 and verse 16, Paul says, See then that you work, walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. So there's an urgency about how we spend our time. There's an urgency about how we spend our time. So not only is there a single-mindedness in preparing the race, but there's also a need to forget the past. I think this is very, very interesting. He says, forgetting those things which are behind. Your past can affect you in a number of very powerful ways. Your past leaves an indelible mark on who you are. The hurts you've been through, the um, traumas you experience as a child, and the patterns of behaviour that you've learned and you've picked up uh, from your parents. And the Bible speaks about that. It talks even about sins being passed on down the generations. And there have 
become a crop, really, of Christian ministries increasingly that focus on helping people to, or supposedly helping people to deal with past hurts and problems and to delve back and uh, maybe to seek for healing within themselves. Now, there's a balance with all these things. There is a place for asking the Lord for healing of hurt um, and, and casting our, our burdens onto him. But do you know what? There's also a danger that we can become very fixated on our past and we can become imprisoned by our past. And that, can, that in itself can lead to a form of bondage. The call of God is actually an upward call. It's not primarily a call to be keep looking back at your past, even if that past is very painful. Um, God wants to beckon you on to things in the future. The upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So for, some, for, for, you, for you people who are focused on those hurts, and, and I'm not saying that harshly, but the word of God to you is God has good things for you. Press toward the goal for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Press upward. But for some people, the issue is not so much that you've been sinned against. It's not so much that you've experienced pain and trauma and that's keeping you in the past. For some of you, it's the fact that you've sinned in a significant way in the past and you're very ashamed of something in your past. And everything you try and do for God now is sullied and tainted by your past and you can't seem to break free from that. You feel like you're defiled, even though you've repented of it, even though you've asked God for forgiveness. And God would say to you, press toward the goal for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Forget those things which are behind and press on. Amen. And do you know, I think for others of you, perhaps for some of you who are a bit older, maybe you feel that the issue is that you're remembering the past, but you're remembering good things from the past. You're remembering how God has used you in the past, how you were doing mighty things in the past for his kingdom. And, and you seem to have your glory days in the past. And now you feel like, with the passage of time, you're on the shelf. And maybe you feel that God's purposes for you are over and done with. But the word for you is that God has no shelf. Amen? And the word for you is press toward the goal for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Press toward the goal for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Amen. So like an athlete in a race, we're to strain every muscle and exert ourselves to the max. A single-minded discipline and a focus on crossing that finish line. So a humble confidence, a future focus. Thirdly, walking in gospel unity. Verses 15 to 16. So Paul says, Therefore let us... As many as are mature have this mind, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us be of the same mind. <clears throat> as Christians, the thing that unites us together is our common pursuit of Jesus Christ. It's knowing him experientially in the power of his resurrection, 
Like we talked about last week, the fellowship of his sufferings and being conformed to his death. We're united as Christians by the fact that Christ Jesus has laid hold of us and we're pressing forward to lay hold of that more and more. We share as Christians the same origin, Jesus laying hold of us, and we share the same destination, the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. They are spiritual realities. What interestingly they're not is intellectual shared perspectives. There are many issues, many issues, where genuine Christians can disagree. Many issues. Pneumatology, eschatology, ecclesiology, soteriology, and any other ology you can think of. (laughs) But what am I saying? What am I saying then? How do we deal with this issue? Because it is an issue, isn't it? How do we deal with this issue of unity and we don't want to compromise the truth? Well, we have to remember that we're united as Christians by spiritual realities, by something that God himself has done when Jesus lays hold of us. But what I'm not saying is that all of these other issues don't matter. I'm not saying that we, you know, they are important in as much as the Bible addresses them, but they are not the basis of our unity. Your basis of unity with somebody else is not the fact that you have the same position on the timing of the rapture with them, I'm afraid. (laughs) Our relationship to Jesus is the basis of our unity. So how do we address these disputable issues? Well, what we do is we, we, trust, we trust that as we make Jesus our main pursuit, as we make him our goal, we trust that God himself will bring like-mindedness in these other areas. That's what Paul says here, doesn't he? It's a promise, really. It's a promise of God. He says, um, you know, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. It's what the Word of God says. We have to trust the Word of God, don't we? Sometimes things, how can we all agree? We all have such different views. But you know, as we make Jesus our pursuit, as we trust in Jesus, God will increasingly bring like-mindedness about many of these other issues as well. When we're walking to heaven, there are many rabbit trails we can go down on all sorts of things, you know, um, uh, and pursuing some of these things in an unbalanced way can cause rifts among us, and it can cause us to stop walking together to heaven with our other brother, Christian brothers and sisters. But the solution is to have the same mind, is what he says. But the same mind doesn't mean necessarily that it's, we intellectually agree on everything, but it's having the mind of Christ, having the mind of Christ, knowing the power of his resurrection, conformed to his death, It's those things, that experience, that experience knowledge of Jesus Christ, that unites us, not these other issues. So we're we're progressing through the um, the, the chapter. Um, So in verse 17, uh, Paul uh, encourages them to um, walk to heaven by following uh, his example. We all need flesh and blood examples, don't we? We need examples of people in our Christian lives we can look to who embody in a physical form Jesus and, and embody the things that he's calling us to. Um, and every example is only as good to us as they are following Jesus, who is the perfect example. But that's what Paul says. And, and in a sense, Paul is both uh, humble here and he's realistic. He says, join in following my example. 
So um, he realises that, and he says, note those who so walk, who have us for a pattern. So he realises he's not the only example, there are many others. But also he's realistic about the fact that we do need examples. And then he goes on and he, he really talks about how, he goes on to the negative here, our three negative points. Um, and he talks here about how not to walk to heaven. That's what we're going to go on to look at now briefly. The context here is that Paul is warning against the enemies of the cross of Christ. And he's basically talking about those people who are living a loose and a licentious lifestyle. <clears throat> They were enemies of the cross of Christ because the cross of Christ means death. It means death to self and it means death to sin. That's what the cross fundamentally means and we looked at that. And these people were enemies of the cross of Christ. They didn't want anything to do with the cross because they knew that it would spell the end of their allegiance to their sin and their allegiance to self. So these were the um, licentious people, the people who were going into immorality. Do you remember we've already encountered the legalists as we've, as we've looked through Philippians? We encountered the Judaizers, those who are trying to put extra burdens on the Christians. But the people Paul seems to be speaking about here as the enemies of the cross of Christ are the licentious people. Um, so those who want to throw off all restraint whatsoever. They were just the same kind of people that Paul mentions in Romans. And you remember they said, we can continue in sin that grace may abound. So they thought that grace was a license to sin. Now there's this balance in the Christian life. Our lives as Christians are not meant to be marked by a slavish legalism, but neither are they to be marked by a reckless licentiousness licentiousness they are to be marked by grace and the bible says paul says in titus he says that the grace of god teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts that we should live soberly righteously and godly in the present age so these these points here about paul telling us how not to walk are really focused on these licentious people, these enemies of the cross of Christ. So three points, three more points. We've talked about how to walk to heaven, and now we're going to talk about how not to walk to heaven. So first point, verse 19, don't walk in the temporary. Don't walk in the temporary. So Paul says, the first thing Paul says about these people, he says, their end is destruction. Although they seem to be flourishing, although they seem to be having a whale of a time in life now, although they seem to be prospering and blessed, Paul says that their end is destruction. It says in Romans uh, 6 and verse 21, it says, What fruit did you then have in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. So destruction, death. Do you remember we spoke uh, last week, I think, about, about, um, about sin and about licentious living? It results in death. It promises to bring life, but it results in death. Spiritual death, physical death, eternal death. Their end is destruction. These people become slaves to sin all their lives, and in the end, what do they have to show for it? They only have decay and physical death, 
and beyond that, that the prospect of eternal torment in hell. Destruction. Not only do they bring and reap destruction in their own lives, but they also bring and reap destruction in the lives of all those they come into contact with. Their end is destruction. And as Christians, we need to have the opposite mindset to that. We need to realize that sin is fruitless, it only leads to destruction. Whereas if we invest our life in Jesus, we will have treasure in heaven. Jim Elliot, do you remember Jim Elliot? He was a missionary and he was murdered by the tribe that he had sought to share the gospel with. Um, And he said these words, he said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. So sin leads only to death and destruction in the end. But Jesus, living for Jesus, leads to life and treasure in heaven. So don't walk in the temporary. Don't walk in the temporary. But the second negative thing Paul says here is he says, don't walk in the flesh. Don't walk in the flesh. Um, It says, whose God is their belly. So for these people, their bodies were their gods. How to feed their bodies how to gratify the sexual desires of their bodies, how to dress their bodies, how to exercise their bodies. Their bodies were their God. It's important to remember that none of these things are actually bad in and of themselves. Food, drink, sex, clothes, exercise are not bad things. But they become very bad things when they become God things. Amen. So when they become God things, they become bad things. So nothing much has changed since Paul's day. Nothing much has changed. If you pick up a magazine today, you'll find that virtually everything in around it revolves around how you can pander to the desires of your flesh. For many people, it's that next gourmet meal, um, that next um, item of clothing, that toned body. And for those people, that thing is their God. But the elevation of God's gifts to the position of God is a form of idolatry. It's a form of idolatry. Um, Paul says in Colossians, he says, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So for us, using our newfound liberty that we have in Christ, it's not an opportunity for the flesh but it's opportunity to love others. So don't walk in the flesh. Don't walk in the temporary. And finally, don't walk in shamefulness. Don't walk in shamefulness. Um, It says, whose glory is in their shame. So not only did they live um, to indulge their bodily urges and appetites, but they actually gloried about it and they boasted about it as well. And unfortunately, many people in the church, there's an increasing and a rising brashness about sin in the church and in our society. And things that God has said that, are, that he hates, he said clearly in his word, I hate this, this is an abomination to me. But now people are flaunting these things, they're proud of them. In the past, in generations gone by, people would have been embarrassed to admit to some of these things. But there's an increasing brashness, there's an increasing flaunting of sin. But you know, shame, we always think of shame as a bad thing, but shame can be a God-given thing. 
Shame can be a God-given thing. Shame with gross immorality and indecency is a God-given protection that God has himself put intrinsically into people. And the rejection of shame, all forms of shame, is a sign of how far we've gone from God. A rejection of shame is a sign of how far we've gone from God. When we start to rejoice in things that God has said are evil, we've, we've gone in the wrong way. Their glory is in their shame. The prophet Jeremiah lived in a generation um, similar to our own, really, and he says this. He says, Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed, nor did they know how to blush. Nor did they know how to blush. Interesting, isn't it? We live in a society that has forgotten how to blush. It's not always a good thing to blush, but you know, there are times when it can be appropriate to blush. There are times, but, but for those who, have re- who are walking as enemies of the cross, they glory and they rejoice in things in which really they should be blushing. Amen. So, <clears throat> so really, this is, this is Paul's roadmap to heaven. This is Paul's roadmap to heaven. Three things that we should do as we walk to heaven. Three things that we should do. Do walk with a humble confidence. Um, uh, do walk... Um, my mind's gone a bit blank. Do walk in something else. Do walk <laughs> with a future... Do walk with a future focus. Don't get, ensla- don't get ensnared and enslaved to your past. Don't think that God's finished with you. So do walk with a future focus. Do walk with a gospel unity. Walk in gospel unity. Don't walk in the temporary. Don't walk in the flesh. Don't walk in shamefulness. And Paul, then, he, he really ends this section. And he reminds them of the destination that they're walking towards. Heaven and the one who makes it heaven, Jesus. We were singing about King of Heaven this morning, weren't we? Jesus is the King of Heaven. And we're walking towards him. And as Christians, our rescuer is coming from heaven. Unfortunately, we can easily look towards an earthly person for our rescue, maybe a political figure. Maybe you're looking towards Donald Trump or Theresa May to be your rescuer. Or maybe you're looking for someone to rescue you from Donald Trump and Theresa May, (laughs) depending on which side of the political spectrum you're on. I mean, we all have our views on these things, don't we? Um, but the thing is, whatever the case, we need to have our eyes fixed firmly on heaven because it's from heaven that our rescuer is coming. It's from heaven. Everyone else will let you down, but it's from heaven. And how important it is in this day and age where everyone's trying to define themselves, their identity, you know, American, the American identity, there's all these sort of rifts there, pro-Trump, anti-Trump. There's, there's, there's the UK, um, pro-Brexit, anti-Brexit. But how important it is for us as Christians to remember that first and foremost, as Paul says in verse 20, we are citizens of heaven. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Politicians come and go, Their plans may flounder or never come to pass. They cannot be relied upon as our ultimate hope. But Jesus is that saviour we need in every sense. Jesus 
is that saviour. Only he has the power to confront our biggest enemies, sin and death. No one else can rescue you from them. No one else can transform these lowly, sinful and decaying bodies that they can become like his glorious body. Only he will one day subdue all things to himself. And only because of the hope that we have in him can we stand fast in him and walk the walk which leads us home to heaven and Jesus, heaven's king.